Brothers and sisters, I wonder how you would define what is a true Christian. And there are many answers to that kind of question. There are people who will say, well, a true Christian is uh, somebody who's always happy, somebody who's always joyful. And, and there's some truth to that, of course. Um, others will say that a true Christian is somebody who, um, who does good things, who's always busy uh, helping the poor and, and uh, doing charitable works. Um, uh, again, there's truth to that too. Uh, but we want to concern ourselves this morning with how does Jesus define a true Christian? Is, according to the Lord Jesus, a true believer? And we have an answer to that question in the passage of Scripture that we read together from Matthew 5, uh, the verses 1 through 12. These verses, as you well know, uh, constitute the first part of our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. And we have here a collection of what is known as Beatitudes. A Beatitude is a pronouncement of blessing. The Lord Jesus here pronounces a blessing on certain types of people. And he's describing here true believers in Christ. And these believers, he says, are characterized by certain marks. And what are these marks? Well, there are eight of them. A true believer is poor in spirit, mournful, is meek. He hungers and thirsts for righteousness. He's merciful. He's pure of heart. He's a peacemaker. And he is persecuted. Now, this is not, of course, a complete list. Uh, there are many other uh, marks of a true Christian that we could uh, mention and that the Lord Jesus could have mentioned, but these are certainly some of the key ones, and they're very, very important. And so with God's help this morning, I want us to reflect uh, for just a few moments, as I said, on the second of these marks, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I'm going to do that under the theme, Jesus blesses the mourners, and we'll consider, first of all, their identity, and secondly, their blessedness. Jesus here speaks of those who mourn. Blessed are they who mourn, he says, for they shall be comforted. So we're looking at mourners, and uh, Jesus speaks about those who mourn. Um, and as, as I said several times, uh, the Bible uh, speaks of several types of mourners. There are those uh, mentioned in the Bible, who mourn over a uh, tragedy in their lives, uh, the loss of a, of a loved one. I think, for example, of Martha and Mary, uh, who mourned deeply over the loss of their brother Lazarus. We think of Mary Magdalene, who was mourning at the tomb of the Lord Jesus, or David, mourning over Absalom. Uh, there are those who mourn over the unfulfilled lust or desire that they are harboring in their heart. We can think of Amnon, who mourned over his lust for his sister, Tamar. Or we can think of Ahab, who, who mourned because he wanted to take possession of, of Naboth's vineyard. And, and there are those who mourn over past actions. We think uh, particularly of Judas Iscariot, who regretted that he had betrayed the Lord Jesus for some 30 pieces of silver. But these are, this is not the kind of mourning that Jesus is speaking of here in our text. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, he's thinking of a particular kind of mourner. He's speaking here of a spiritual mourning. He's thinking here of people who mourn over their sin. 
And we know that because in these verses, the Beatitudes, Jesus is describing for us the characteristics of a child of God, of a citizen of the kingdom of God. And the very first quality that he mentions here is poverty of spirit. People who are poor in spirit are those who who know that they are nothing, who have nothing in themselves, who have low thoughts of themselves. They know that they have nothing which can commend them before God, that can have any, uh, that can that can merit them anything before God. These are people who are spiritually bankrupt. Well, mourning is a direct result of spiritual poverty. Those who mourn are those who mourn over sin and over the effects of sin. There are many examples of this kind of mourning in the scriptures. I think, for example, of of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when he's there and he sees this vision of God in the temple high and lifted up and his train filled the temple and, and he's so impressed with the holiness of God and his own sinfulness that he cries, woe is me. That's a kind of mourning, isn't it? Or I think of the woman who washed the feet of the Lord Jesus with her tears. What a beautiful example this is of, of, of the kind of mourning that Jesus is, is speaking of. A woman who was so convicted of her sinfulness that all she could do was just weep at, at Jesus' feet and, and dry his, his feet with her, with her hair. I think too of the, of the publican in the temple who, who was afar off in the far corner of the temple. There the Pharisee was standing there, trouncing out all of his supposed virtues before the Lord. And there was this poor publican crying out, Oh God, have mercy upon me, the sinner. We can think too of the, the people on the day of Pentecost who after Peter uh, preached the gospel to them and told them who Jesus Christ was and that they had with wicked hands had crucified the Son of God. They, they cried out, men and brethren, what must we do? This is what the Apostle Paul calls a godly sorrow. And every child of God knows something of this kind of sorrow. Child of God is one who mourns. He mourns, first of all, over his own sin. He looks at himself and he sees nothing but sin. There are sins of omission. There are sins of commission. There are original sins. There's our original sin as well as the actual sins that we commit. There are sins of thought. There are sins of word. There are sins of deed, and, and we look at all of these sins in our lives, and sometimes they can, they can become like a mountain before us. And we look at those sins, and, and we begin to mourn, not always outwardly. We don't always shed physical tears over our sin. Sometimes we do, and that's a beautiful thing when the Lord so impresses upon us our sinful nature that we, that we shed actual tears, but we don't always shed actual tears. And that's not what Jesus is speaking about here either. This kind of mourning is an inward mourning. It's a sorrow of heart. It's a mourning we we experience in the depth of our being. Why is it that the believer mourns over his or her sin? Well, because we realize what sin has cost. We realize that it was our sin that put the Lord Jesus Christ 
on the cross. It was our sin that pounded the nails into his hands and into his feet. It was our sin that pressed down the crown of thorns on his head. It was our sin that caused him to be separated from God, that he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When we think of that, when we think of what our sin did, how it caused our Lord to suffer and to die, it's only natural that we would, that we would mourn over those sins. But we also mourn over sin because it's the highest form of ingratitude. Thomas Watson said, sin is a kicking against the breasts of mercy. Let's put only the way Thomas Watson could put it. And isn't that true? You think about all the blessings that the Lord bestows upon us every day in terms of material blessings, especially in terms of spiritual blessings, how the Lord has, has forgiven us all of our sins and has adopted us as His sons and daughters and has entered into a relationship with us such that we can cry out to Him, Abba, Father. You think about the fact that all of our sins are washed away in His precious blood, that we have the gift of everlasting life. And then you think about what do we render to the Lord in return for all that He has given to us. Nothing but sin and shortcoming. Even our best works are stained with sin. And the child of God knows this. He sees this and this convicts him. And this is another reason why, why he mourns. The child of God also mourns because sin negatively affects his relationship to God. We read together from Psalm 32, and we don't know a lot about why David wrote this particular psalm. We don't know anything about the background to this psalm, but when you read it carefully, it's obvious that David had committed some kind of sin. What kind of sin this was, we don't know. He doesn't mention it. Perhaps he was thinking about the sin that he committed with Bathsheba. We don't know. But whatever the case may be, he had committed a sin and he was feeling guilty about it. And what's striking about this psalm is that for the first while, David refused to acknowledge it. He refused to confess it. Maybe he thought that, well, if I, if I don't think about it, that it'll just go away on its own. And these, these pangs of conscience that I'm experiencing, that will, that will gradually dissipate. But that's not what happened. Instead, his feelings of guilt only got worse. And he says in verses 3 and 4, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Why was David so miserable? It's because sin affected his relationship with God. And he knew that the longer that he refused to acknowledge his sin, the more distant he would come, he would become from his God. And David knew this, and this is not what he wanted. He loved communion and fellowship with God. But when he felt that that was gone, when it was slipping away from him, he began to mourn. And so the believer is one who mourns. Yes, he also rejoices. We don't want to say that the believer is always somebody who is, who is miserable and sad. Of course not. Believer is one who rejoices. The Apostle Paul even commands us, doesn't he? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, 
I say, in case we didn't get it the first time, again I say, rejoice. And we have much reason to rejoice. When you think of all that the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us, should we not be the most joyful people in the world? And yet even as we rejoice, we mourn. There's this dual aspect experientially in the life and the experience of every believer. We're mourning and at the same time we're rejoicing. We're mourning over sin. We're mourning over the power of sin and the penalty of sin, the consequences of sin. But this is not all. Not only does a child of God mourn over his own sins, but he also mourns over the sins of others. He looks at what's happening in the world today. and looks at how, how quickly we as a society are departing from the Word of God, from the law of God, how the commandments of God are being trampled underfoot each and every day. And he looks at, at the consequences of all of that. And he looks at society and he And he mourns, he mourns over immorality, he mourns over over crime, he mourns over poverty and oppression and, and war and famine and natural disasters and all of these things that come about as a result of our fall into sin. He mourns over the sins of others. And he does this because the believer loves God and his law. See, the Christian knows that it grieves and even angers the Lord when men do not obey His law. And the believer mourns over this because he simply simply cannot bear to see God angry and upset and disappointed. Laws that are meant for our good that God has given to us in His grace, when he sees those laws being disregarded and shoved aside and ignored and even mocked and ridiculed, that causes him grief. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 119, verse 136? Rivers of waters run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. Rivers of waters. He also mourns because he loves his fellow men. A Christian loves his neighbor as himself. That's the second table of the law. And so naturally we're concerned about the spiritual welfare, and especially the eternal welfare of our neighbor. We, we know that as long as sinners refuse to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will spend an eternity in hell. And the thought of millions upon millions of people ending up in hell causes a child of God to mourn. We mourn over the lost condition of so many people that we work with, that we live with, even some of them our own children. How different is the attitude of the world? People from the world think nothing about sin. Sin is a joke. People from the world laugh at sin. They indulge in sin, but not so the child of God. Child of God mourns over his sin, his own sin, first of all, but also the sins of others. And in mourning over his sin, he's imitating, is he not, the Lord Jesus himself? Jesus also mourned over sin. 
Not his own sin, of course, because he had no sin. He was perfect. He was without sin, but he mourned over the sins of others. He mourned over Jerusalem. How often, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he says, how often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, but ye would not. The Savior mourns. He mourns over the sin in the world, over the fact that so many countless millions are heading to an eternal destiny in hell. Jesus mourned, and so do His people. Does this describe you this morning? Are you somebody who mourns over his or her sin? You know, we can become, even believers can become insensitive to sin. We can become desensitized to sin. We get used to sin. It doesn't grip us. It doesn't convict us the way that it should. And we need to pray daily, Lord, show me my sin. Convict me of my sin. This doesn't come from ourselves. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God who opens up the eyes of the blind to see ourselves for who and what we are by nature and even in grace. And I wonder if we know of that kind of thing this morning. Well, if so, then you can be encouraged because Jesus says you're blessed. You're blessed. You know, so though the believer is one whose experience is characterized by mourning, he will not mourn forever. One day this mourning will come to an end. And this is exactly what Jesus says in the second part of this beatitude. Blessed are they that mourn, he says, for they shall be comforted. It's an absolute statement, isn't it? They shall be comforted. He doesn't say they might be, they hope, we hope they will be. Uh, we expect that they will be. No, this is an absolute promise of the Word of God. They shall be comforted. It's a reminder to us, isn't it, that whatever sorrow we experience in this life is only temporary. Whatever sorrow we experience as believers in this life will eventually turn to joy. The mourners shall be Comforted. Now this raises three questions. First of all, who will do the comforting? The verb here is in the passive voice, and that implies that the believer is comforted by someone else. Well, who is the one who's doing the comforting? Well, you know, it's God Himself. God Himself, who John says, will one day wipe away every tear from our eyes. And it's particularly the Lord Jesus Christ who comforts His people through His Holy Spirit, who is the ultimate comforter of the people of God. And He can comfort because He has experienced everything that we experience except sin. But He knows the power of temptation. And He experienced the wrath of God against sin. And He knows what it is to be misunderstood and to be falsely accused and despised and rejected and forsaken of both God and man. Hebrews says he was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. And that qualifies him, doesn't it, to be the ultimate comforter 
of His people. And so when we're mourning, who do we go to? We go to the Lord because He understands. He can identify. He can empathize with us in all of our sorrows. How does He comfort them? That's the second question that this raises. How does He do this? Well, He does this by His Word, doesn't He? By His Word as it is applied by the Holy Spirit. And I'm thinking particularly here of the promises of the Word of God. The Bible is so full of promises. And every one of those promises provides much comfort for the child of God. And when we read those promises, we may also claim those promises. We may come to the Lord and say, but Lord, you said in your word this or that. And when we see it there written in black and white, what a comfort that gives to the mourning child of God that the Lord has not forsaken me. And that the work that He has begun in me, He will surely finish because His Word says so. And because He has said it, I believe it. What a comfort that is in times of of hardship, in times of trial. And all of a sudden the Word of God comes to you with such power. Or you could be sitting in church and, and the minister is preaching on a text or he says something in the sermon that exactly meets your need at that moment. What is that? That is, that is the Lord comforting His people. He does it through His Word and through His Holy Spirit. And when will He do this? When will, this, when will we experience this comfort? Well, initially we experience this comfort at the moment of conversion. Prior to conversion, the sinner is laboring under conviction of sin. Sin is like a, like a burden to him. We think of, of, of Christian and pilgrim's progress. You know, we don't always experience that to the same degree that John, Bunyan's, that John Bunyan describes that in, in pilgrim's progress, but we all know something about the burden of sin before we come to faith in Christ. But as soon as the sinner comes to look to Christ and comes to behold the Lord Jesus Christ and all of his willingness and all of his ability to save, that burden is lifted and like Christian that falls off his back and, and rolls down the hill and, and, and goes into the tomb. And we're comforted. We're comforted in the knowledge that that burden of sin, it's gone. The penalty has been paid. We're reconciled to God. He becomes our Father. Christ is our elder brother. We experience something of what what Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We come to know what that rest is the moment we are converted to Jesus Christ. But we also experience this comfort throughout our life. Because once we're converted to God, we don't stop sinning. You know that. The child of God sins continually. We have these two natures, right? Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 7. They're always at war with each other. And, and the one nature, we want, we want to go our own way and do our own thing. And the other, the other nature is causing us to walk in the ways of the Lord. And that creates such a conflict in Paul, right? That he, he cries out at the end of that chapter, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? from this body of death. This is a child of God speaking. We are saved 
we are cleansed, we are forgiven, but we continue to sin. And every time we sin, what do we do? We come before the Lord and we confess that before His face. And we plead the promise of His Word that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's a promise, that again, that we can claim before God. And when we come before the Lord and we believe this promise and we come before Him with our sins and we believe this promise of His Word and we are comforted, that God will forgive also the sins that we commit every day. But ultimately, we will be comforted in glory. This is the comfort that the believer longs to experience because this will be an ultimate, final, and complete comfort. Why? Because in the life to come, there will be no more sin. So there will be no more cause for mourning anymore. The old man within us will be completely eradicated, gone, totally gone. And we will worship and serve the Lord with uprightness of heart and perfection for an everlasting eternity. So in life to come, there will be no more sin and there will be no more consequences of sin. There will be no more no more sickness, no more disease, no more, no more death, no more persecution. All the things that we experience in this life that cause us to mourn, it'll all be gone. Sin and its consequences, its effects will be completely eradicated. Imagine what that will be like. How wonderful that will be to be able to serve God without being weighed down by sin all the time. Imagine never sinning. Imagine never having to ask for forgiveness. Imagine never again experiencing the power of sin, the consequences of sin, to be free from sin once and for all. Oh, this is what the believer longs for more than anything else, to be to be set free from sin, yes, to behold the face of His Redeemer, but also to be set free from sin and to worship and praise God. And it's then, it's then that we shall be comforted. And this is, this is why we're blessed. We're not blessed because we mourn. We're blessed because we shall be comforted by God in this life, but also in the life to come. Oh, may God grant that we all may become such mourners for the first time or, or in a deeper way because Jesus says in our text that those who mourn shall be blessed and the blessing that he's thinking of here is wonderful, is rich, it is eternal. We shall be comforted in this life and in the life to come. And that all the tears that we have shed in our life over our own sin and the sins of others will be dried up completely. God will wipe them all away. We shall rejoice. That joy will be a perfect joy. It will not diminish. It will only grow stronger and deeper with every 
passing day. We could even speak of days in eternity. And it will endure because Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we are so grateful for the Word of God, for the precious promises of the Word, for this passage that we have read and reflected on, however briefly, this morning. Lord, we, we live in a valley of tears. Our catechism describes life like that, and it's so true. And there are many tears that go up that, 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 that we experience every day, tears because of our sin, tears because of the sins of others. And we pray, O God, wilt thou graciously pardon our sin and come to us with that soothing balm of Gilead, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that is able to cleanse away all of our sins and to present us faultless before the Father's throne. We thank thee for this promise that those who mourn shall be comforted. And we long for that day when all of the children of God shall stand before the throne and their tears shall be wiped away. And there shall be joy, unrestricted joy, in the presence of God that will endure to all eternity. Lord, will thou hasten that day. Will thou encourage every one of us in our Christian walk. Will thou bless each of the students here at PRTS and their professors. We're so grateful for this institution, grateful for what she stands for, grateful for the teaching uh, that is brought here from day to day. Remember each one of us as in the different roles that we play in this seminary, will thou grant thy blessing upon it. Remember us further in this day and all that we do. Keep us in thy loving care. And bless the labors of our hands to thy glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.